out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Scottish bass band. It is Friends Again. I spoke to two of the members very recently, Paul McGeechan and also Chris Thompson, to find out more about life, love, poetry and everything else. This is the interview. It's um, broken into two parts. It's a Zoom issue. I'm not going into details. But anyway, look, Friends Again, formed 19, early 1980s in Glasgow. And um, uh, what was the case? Yes, Paul went on eventually to form uh, Love and Money. And also Chris went and formed The Bathers. So you'll find that probably in part two, actually. But anyway, this is going to be part one. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to the exciting subject that was the early musical years. Now... Who's who? Paul is the one who speaks first, and Chris, his vocals is a little bit clearer and slightly louder. It's that's the best I can do. Anyway, look, Paul, tell us about your early musical influences. I, I think Glitter was one of my first singles, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, it's interesting when you look back. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had a, I had every Gary Glitter single in every glitter band single I was a big uh, the, the production in those tracks were amazing as well they weren't just good pop songs but, and also Slade I remember my friend Stan and a few other things and Chris and I have got a a, a naughty holder story we can let you know about as well so. excellent yes so yeah. it was kind of so are you all are you both in your mid 50s I'm 59 in April Right. Yeah. So yeah, we were both. I think we were both born sixty-two. Is that right? Sixty-two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. July sixty-two. Slightly just a few months behind. Yeah. Yeah. So, and were yeah, you? And I was going to say, so so Chris, what was your musical moment, which which kind of started to have a big impact? Um, sounds very similar to yourself. I, I do remember those very early black and white. Well, early to me, top of the pops. You know, must have been. I guess it was late sixties. Maybe it's 1970, and um, been fascinated by all these literally incredibly glam- glamorous people. I think when the audience were probably at the coolest, you know, the long, long hair, Sandy Shaw, black and white. You know those early ones. Uh, I think I remember. Um, uh, God, what was the guy who did the fire? Alpha very, Brown. Very, yeah, yeah. Yes, very, very scary moment. That was <laughs> an early memory. I think yeah. the first single. A little, a little bit of a tie-in with Paul, actually, because there was another subsequently discredited performer. Um, my aunt gave me Rolf Harris for Christmas. Right. Two little boys, which must have been about 69, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Uh, so, to my defence, I didn't buy it myself, but I was given that. Uh, and a bit <laughs> like the Glitter thing, you know, there were some great records by Glitter, but unfortunately... You know, events have kind of overtaken. It has, but I, I do, I do have moments where I, I go on Spotify and listen to Gary Glitter, and I do yeah. notice because they have a monthly listening. So I'm not the yeah. only one yeah. who has those moments. There are like hundreds of thousands. Kind of, and, yeah, I told you something. You have to divorce him because obviously it wasn't the only. It was the writers and the production team. So yeah, we say yeah, they're, they're good records. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, yeah. I, I do, I do feel a little bit sorry for the rest of the band who must have been thinking we. Yeah. 
we could have been cashing in here, but we're on the circuit for you know cashing in. This is the pension. <laughs> Funny you mentioned Slade. There was a piece I think it was today in the the Guardian. Um, Dave Hill still going. He's the last man standing. Yeah, uh, falling out with with the drummer, uh, Don Powell, was it? It so was. The, yeah. Don and Dave. After all these years, you'd think how bad can it be? But apparently, he's fallen out with uh, the drummer, but he's soldiering on. Yeah, um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange one because he brought a book out two or three years ago, which I, I interviewed him for, and he was like very loyal to the drummer at the start time, and um, yeah, who, who's, who's, got, who's got a short-term memory problem. So he, he and then he sacked him last year, which I saw on social media. The fans were absolutely devastated by. Yeah, it's, he wouldn't go into any detail, but he said it. Oh, it's not as it was presented. So it's, it's who knows what happened, but. He, he said he didn't sack him by email, as is claimed by, by the drummer. Um, but yeah, it was, it was actually a lovely read. I mean, he seems an absolutely amazing character. I think he's 75 this year. And yeah, really took, had a stroke on stage about 10 years ago. He's like, oh, I've let the band down. But, you know, he, he's an absolute trooper and loves it. You know, he started, uh, I think he was working in a Holford's factory or something. Right. Um, by night, starting Slade, put on his Superman costume, straight from his job. It's just it's just a kind of classic, um, you know, 1970s, even 60s kind of, you know, that the the, the way bands, it was, it was you know, you're working at a factory doing the band and it, then suddenly they were massive. Yes, you know? well, I think most people spent most, you know, you would spend years, if not decades, like David Bowie, you know, you know, failing miserably throughout the 60s with some terrible yeah. kind of bands and, and records, and then suddenly you get it, and, and all those characters. And even yeah. Debbie Harry in the 70s, I mean, she was in her 30s when she, she hit, you know, Top of the Pops and Denise, 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 Denise. So um, it's quite interesting. Yeah. I mean, we, we're now, fetish, you know, everything's about youth, isn't it? But then, you know, 30 was not too mad. And uh, yeah, I suppose punk was a bit different. Everyone wanted to be 18. So then, well, so you both grew up in, in Glasgow. So was, was music a massive part of your lives at that stage? Yeah. I think for me, really, from about 11, 12 years old, I was just listening to the, the radio every day, you know, just a wee portable radio. But Chris and I, we were at school together, in primary school, but we didn't really know each other that well then. And it was just, we, we got to know each other in secondary school. Uh, and the, the, I suppose I've said this before, but Chris and I met, I'd been at a music shop in Hamilton. Uh, try, going to look at a mini MIG synthesizer, but been too shy to try it. And I met Chris in the main street and he had a, a pile of records under his arm. And there was a, about half a dozen Bowie records that he just bought because he was in money uh, and a, a son of Aldi and got talking about music. And we decided to start a band. Chris could play at that time. I didn't have a keyboard, but we decided that we would, we would start a band. And then that's right. <laughs> just yeah. meeting a chance meeting in the main street talking about... Yeah. Well, it, well, it's interesting because Keith Richards and... Uh, was it... Uh, Keith Richards and uh, Mick Jagger had the same story. They met on a railway station and it was like somebody had that's a right, blues record. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I think um, I think it's difficult to overstate the importance of the see-through bags that you had for your records. <laughs> <laughs> you brought it into a music club and things like that. So when you were walking about the street, oh, a Zeppelin record, a Bowie record. And it, yeah, it was a great, that was, in fact, that's how we met Neil, the bass player in Friends again. He was also at school with us. And same sort of thing, oh, 
what can I borrow your record? You know, without even knowing what can I borrow your record? Yes, of course. And, um, you know, the friendship sprung up from there. Yes. So this was in Glasgow. So were you, were you sort of hanging, was it quite a scene in Glasgow at this stage of music and bands? Because and, everyone who I've interviewed from your area always say, oh, yes, we went to see Roxy Music and then we saw David Bowie. And there's this list of amazing bands. I mean, I come from East Anglia. We, we didn't have that social kind of excitement, really. Well, yeah. And also, where were Chris and I are from, Addington and Boswell, South Lanarkshire outside Glasgow, so many bands have come from that area that when we were growing up some of our friends the David and Ken McCluskey went on to form the Bluebells after their punk band Raw Deal and you know a teenage fan club are from here Soup Dragons are from this area Friends Again Bluebells it's just topically uh, bands in the 80s and then the 90s and so forth and so on I was just thinking Mogwai are from not so far from us I think they're uh, Lark Hall was just down the road. They just had a number one after 25 years. So, yeah, there was huge amounts of bands in the scene because it's just that, just a bit out of the city. So it's kind of a lot of suburban bands, but the Bell Sales scene with the BMX Bandits and Fan Club, Teenage Fan Club, um, Superstar, all these bands, the Mogwai. Yes. Or from a slightly different bit of the city. East Kilbride was, was quite close to us. And again, Jesus, Mary Chain, Aztec Camera, uh, Primal Scream. <laughs> yeah, massive list of bands. Yeah, I think we were close enough to the big city that we did, we were spoiled by some amazing, I mean, everyone basically came through the Apollo, the legendary Glasgow Apollo was an amazing gig. It's probably where most of us saw our first big concerts, you know, the, yeah. the days with the big sheds, of course, you know, it was, it was like theatre-style concerts, 3,000 people. The Apollo was quite something with the balcony moving. And it's just, just extraordinary. I mean, we, we all saw a lot of um, great stuff in there. I mean, my first gig was exactly as you say, Bowie, Bowie <laughs> at the Polo, you know, and every second person I speak, seem to speak to of my age around here that, oh, yeah, I was at that one. <laughs> they did four nights, you know, those are the days, four nights in front of 3,000 people. And I know Paul went to, you know, many, many gigs. In fact, we both we saw Joy Division at the Apollo. Yeah, well, about supporting the buscocks yeah, and yeah. the double bill. You know, and then, <laughs> I was actually watching an interview with uh, Wendy the other day, and we saw Gary Newman with the Wendy supporting them. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think we specifically went almost to see OMD because you had the very early single, so we kind of knew what to expect. So we were, you know, in that big crowd. Yeah, we, we wanted to see OMD, but no one much had heard of them. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was great. You know, there's two guys on stage with the big reel to reel, and the, I think the drum machine was there as well, if memory serves. But yeah, there's some fantastic things came through. So that fueled the scene, and I think um, the fact that the postcard record scene really took off in a more national way that sort of gave you the the inspiration to think, hang on, a local band, maybe maybe we could actually do something here. Yeah, absolutely, because um, that was Alan Horn, wasn't it? And then also, yeah. I suppose it was was probably in the mid '80s. But I do remember that documentary where John John Peel went and spoke to was it Sean from the Soup Dragons and was wandering around those very streets yeah. and the, and the little youth yeah. pointing out. Yeah, he spent some time with um, Emma Pollock as well and the Delgados. He hung out in the studio and really got to know the band and were big. Uh, support of the Delgados and the, 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 I guess that would be late 90s, I can't remember. 
Yeah, but I do remember Sean telling me that John Peel gave him some money to go down to London to do the session, and then years later he tried to give him the money back. So John Peel was a massive kind of influence on everyone. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely listened to that religious. Once I discovered it, it was, you know, just basically didn't miss a show for about Chris, two years. Because you remember that uh, Neil, our bass player, was the guy that phoned uh, Peel up to see Susan the Banshees had split because they were meant to be playing That's their right. <laughs> Well, he found out at the sign check in Glasgow or something, didn't he? Was he... He was at the Apollo gig and they split at the, the sound check. He, that's right. He knew so he was up that. I, I don't know if this is true, but a guy from Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> it was true. It was true. Yeah, I'd forgotten that one. I well remembered. Yeah. Yes. I think it was, was that when the guitarist decided to leave and Susie almost chased him down the street and beat him up, but that might be. Yeah. <laughs> it could have been. It, was, it wasn't pretty. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, was, uh, as the seventies the progressed, obviously there was like we had the punk period and there was prog rock and heavy metal. What was your kind of musical moments that started to develop until you formed the band? Well, I guess there's two sides to it, and you've touched on them both. As I, I sat myself and Neil, the bass player, were very much more punk orientated. What led me into punk? I, I think uh, John Peel probably. Yeah, and it all seemed to come at once that the John Peel and then starting to buy sounds in NME. I think I started with sounds, was probably because Bowie was in the front or something. But then, okay, one's not enough. And by the, by the end of the year, I was buying Melody Maker sounds, NME, anything, just anything I'd get my hands on. And Peel was fantastic, as you know, because he was so diverse. I mean, you know, he'd play The Fall, The Buzzcocks, Ivor Cutler. Um, Absolutely, and then yeah. the same side of Lust for Life or something, you know, the new Iggy album. So it was such a, there was so much. Um, Andy would also play some prog rocky stuff, because, but I guess from where he'd come from. But Paul, Paul, as he'll tell you, was probably coming from more a ELP yeah. set. A lot, a lot of I was growing up with this before I met Chris and Neil, they were all kind of into, I suppose, Genesis and music. I was kind of into Emerson Palmer because I, I liked the synthesizing. Right. And then when I met uh, Chris and Neil, I suppose we kind of changed a wee bit getting into the Joy Division. Psychedelic Fuzz was another one quite in, into yeah. that. Uh, and that became a bit of an influence. So I suppose it's when Friends Again started, we were playing Bowie tracks, we were playing all sorts of stuff that maybe... We were mishmashing, we were playing, I think we did some Attempted some Clash cover versions and things. Yeah. A bit of everything. Um, what was the Future Days? Is kind of almost a forgotten band, but they had that pretty paracetamol, which was very sort of electronic, new wave. So we were a bit, we were a bit of a merge. Well, as Bowie as a pivot, then it, you know, yeah. outward from there, kind of punky energy, and then the bit of underground, like most of the Glasgow bands, is, and that again within that was a lot covered because some of it was very good atonal noise. But then you had the beautiful ballads. And I think I think that's what Orange Juice and Aztecs tapped into really well with the songwriting craft. Yes. Be, you know, began to inter interest us as well as all those other influences. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because because I, I had an older brother who was seven years older and he was really into prog rock and mm. I worshipped him. So I listened to all his records, not when he was in, because he banned me from ever going in his room and listening. But obviously, as a young kid, you go, ooh, yeah, wow. and go and put on these records. And and because I'd heard nothing like them, and even the solo work of Rick Wakeman, 
yeah. I was I was mesmerised by the inner King Arthur yeah. legends. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, so so topographic ocean relayer, you know, close to the edge, tomato, you know, all those albums are, are ensconced in my DNA, you know. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I had an older cousin who was similar to that experience. He had the you know quite a healthy rack of vinyl, and it just was play would play the odd thing, but even just looking at the sleeves, the titles, the the design was just endlessly fascinating. It really just sucked you in. Yes, and and he wouldn't buy a seven inch because that wasn't you know that wasn't that the was thing not, to do. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you? Because you formed. I mean, you know, eighty nine, um, seventy nine. You know, Thatcher gets in after all the the political ups and downs of the decade, and then things start to change a lot. So then, as the de you know the eighties came along, you know, we'd had the po there was the post punk period, wasn't there? With with people like Gang of Four and Magazine and the Fall and the, the Nightingales or the Prefects. So what were you all you know as as you started that decade? Because I've got indie pop down from the years of '83, which is the years of the Smiths, and things changed from when they suddenly hit. So, but you were before then, really, weren't you? Well, we started with the '81. We we first recorded in '81, very January '81, I think it was, and we did a, a show round about that. The first gig as well, Chris. I think that yeah, that's those right. tapes, and in fact, those early tapes from '81 were just released last November. Uh, early records of that, and it was—it's a bit more. This you can see in a bit more of a new wave influence in the music, yeah. and uh, and you know, there's a bit of Joy Division comes through, and maybe a bit of Bunnyman and that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, again, magazine, you know, tracks like show on both sides and an amazing track. You remember the magazine is a great band. So there was bits of that coming through, Psychedelic Fuzz, as I mentioned earlier, or listening to all that kind of stuff. But I suppose for me, Psychedelic Fuzz were quite related to Billy in a sense that I always thought whether they would agree or not. But so those early things came out, I think, in the early recordings, maybe. Yeah. Because it's interesting to listen to early Simple Minds, because they're quite different, aren't they? Yeah. Very much to that. The um, what was that? The album with the bluish cover. I think it was maybe their second record. Yeah, that's it. Kakoff something. Real to real Kakoff. Yeah, that was very. That was very. Yeah, yeah. That was we we had we had those records. I think Neil again the bass player. He was he was very good at. He was the first one to bring home a Bunnyman record. Right. Let him you know check this out. And I remember the the David Byrne. You know, record he, he would things like that, and we're like, wow, that, what, that's incredible. Yeah, the Bushy Ghosts thing. And so there was a lot of diverse influences coming in. Then we, I think we, we sort of felt we were, we were sort of drawn to that arty side, or whatever you might call it. It's a bit more experimental. Um, looking so for a were you playing gigs around the country at this stage in in the sort of early decade? No, we wouldn't have been. We wouldn't have been doing. Touring shows and stuff till about eighty three, I think. Yeah, uh, maybe eighty, maybe late eighty two. Yeah, eighty two, early eighty three. We'd be starting to do quite a lot of gigs around Britain. Yeah, it was good. Uh, it was good back then with the, the university circuit. It was much more orientated towards uh, quite decent budget for bands. We even as a supporting band, uh, we we played some pretty big uh, to quite big audience. You know, got a thousand students in the hall or something. Yes. Um, 80, certainly 82, 83, I mean, the, again, the record companies liked to, once we got a deal in, in about 83, they had a publishing then as well, I think they wanted to get us out on that circuit and started to build up a bit of a, 
an audience, whoever we could. But I'm sure we visited University of East Anglia several times. Yes, period. well, I think, I mean, it's kind of, the one thing that I sort of realised during this show is that we did have these kind of gatekeepers, you, you know, like you had the music press that had like yeah. circulation figures of 100,000 virtually each, didn't you? And then you had John Peel, then you had the, you know, you had the university circuit, but you had all those kind of little art centres and clubs in most cities and in yeah. towns. So you could... Moose Club and things like that. Yeah, 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 they were important. Yeah. And the entertainments convener of the universities were real gatekeepers as to who they were booking. Yeah. So they had, they had quite strong relationships with the record companies and things. In fact, I think a lot of those guys went on to have successful careers as managers or promoters. I think in the case of regular music, the, the guy who runs that was an ENTS convener back then. But yeah, they were important figures because they, that live scene was, was, was a massive thing. Yeah, and the opportunities were really there to to get out in front of big audiences. Um, and you signed so to a major. You signed to quite a major record label quite early on, didn't you? We did. Uh, we signed yeah. to Polygram. Uh, was it was it Mercury at that point? I uh, always confused me that the label names. You know, yeah, it was Umbrella, but they, they seemed to change. That it was Mercury, Fontana, Phonogram. All under Polygram. It was under a Phonogram badge. Yeah, it was a big yeah, major yeah. label. Tears for Fears, Julian Cope. You'd meet Status Quo on the left, that kind of thing. You know, felt, <laughs> felt quite, felt, oh, we're, we're getting somewhere. Um, it was, yeah, it was interesting because Phonogram at that point had such a huge catalogue of pop rock music. So they, they would... Wow. They, they couldn't. They were just making so much money, so they could afford. Yeah. It was also the CD revolution. It was eighty three, eighty four. Dire Straits, Brothers in Arms, who were signed to. So you know, there were a lot of bands like us getting signed to major major labels. Is the infamous bidding war with the Pale Fountains? Yeah. I think the final figure was about one hundred fifty thousand, which is a lot of money in the early early eighties for a bunch of guys from Liverpool. Uh, so we didn't quite get. A check as big as that, but it was looking back, oh, it was like, oh, that was quite a, I don't know, maybe it's like 50 or 60 grand or something for signing on, which is a lot of money for five, four, four or five guys on the on the dole. Uh, yes. In Bozo, but uh, where did it all go? So were you were you part of that scene that, that because um, a lot of indie bands were, were sort of signing on or job um, doing the Job Seekers Alliance, Enterprise Alliance scheme, so were you, were you on that kind of Doing music as almost a full-time thing while while sort of claiming unemployment. Well, I think we had various jobs. At one point, I was in a cafe. James did a, a theatre group one. He was on a, a young person's employment thing with theatre group, so he get an equity card through that and so forth. But none of us were on doing music courses or anything like that. We just uh, yeah. we were doing odd jobs in the um, bits and pieces, yeah. and obviously. Unemployment benefit wasn't huge, but it gave you enough. We were very fortunate, as the Bluebells were, that Neil, the bass player's mum, had like a semi-derelict building. It was a functioning building, an outhouse that we could rehearse in. So we had that space that people could come to. And it became a bit of a kind of hangout, a bit of a gang hop kind of thing. But it gave us a space to rehearse. So we saved up money, bought equipment, and then, you know, unemployment benefit was enough for us to... To, to survive because we had our own space to the hair. So we were very fortunate yeah. in that sense, you know. So. Yes. 
And were you, and, and creatively, was, were things kind of ticking or starting to click into place quite smoothly at this stage? Yeah, I mean, as I say, Chris could play a bit, I bought a synth, so I learned to play a wee bit of that. Uh, I was into electronics, so we built some equipment, some of it worked, some of it didn't. Uh, I built a drum machine, which actually we used in a record quite recently, we built a drum machine that was published now. Practical Electronics magazine, I think Joy Division built the same one. And that's the way, you know, because equipment was so expensive, especially synthesizers and all that, but you could build bits and pieces. So we were creative in that sense and we used beautiful for backing tracks and we experimented a lot, you know, I think. Yes. And I, I think, you know, again, the influence of Joy Division, they were doing all that kind of thing, making all their own equipment and using things in a different way. And even if you went directly, understanding it you could hear things you thought well what is doing that and it was a really interesting time i think yeah. i think there was the overhang of the punk for the, D the diy philosophy which allowed you to even if you were ultimately trying to do something uh, more sophisticated you 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 were allowed to go about it in a very punk diy fashion to try you know there's sort of a lot of the barriers seem to come down you you know like just improvising sound and, and equipment from what was lying around. Um, I, mean, I think even the fact we even had the goal to sort of be become a band when we were pretty rough as, as players, and Paul was, you know, describing me as playing a bit, I mean, it's, I may have been slightly ahead of Paul, but it, it was a pretty <laughs> low level. You know, it's very kind of you, but you know, I'm not going to overstate my case here. It was pretty I was a keyboard player because I bought a synthesizer. Yeah. <laughs> monophonic, of course, you only have to worry about one finger at a time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, we, we, yeah, I've been famous there. I remember, I think it was probably our very, very first live gig, which was in a local scout hall. And um, we sort of booked out the scout hall. But is anyone coming? And sure enough, about 50 to 100 people poured in, including our local rivals, who later became the Bluebells. Um, and they went, oh, and they, we, the trouble is it was the sinking thing was we knew they were actually quite proficient. So they was, oh, can we help you tune up, guys? I mean, just remember this feeling of fear, like, tune up, what the hell is that? And then Neil and I looking at it, no, we don't, we are we punk, we don't do that. And I, I do remember my guitar technique only involved ever holding down two strings at any one time. And I now realise they were tuned wrongly, but yeah. But there was definitely that, that do. Yourself. I always can remember thinking that the drummer got a, a bit of an applause when he hit the cymbals once as well. Yeah, I think there was a, there was a bit of confusion as to what the bass drum pedal did as well. I think he, I think he was a snare man to put it to put it kindly. There wasn't a lot of bass pedal action going on. But then, of course, the inevitable happened, and the the Bluebell Boys. Okay, I said, okay, if we play a few numbers, and they sort of took over the gig, and it, it was a character building experience because they were they were. Fantastic comparison to us. Yes. Uh, you must uh, say, no. things, things must have shifted quite quickly then from, from being in a scout hut, barely knowing yeah. what you're doing, to being on a signing for a major. What what happened in that period? Well, I think, I mean, I think enthusiasm was one thing. And I was talking to someone about this recently, and I said there was an element of luck involved. But when the luck came, <laughs> We were, I wouldn't say we were ready, but we were on the way to being because because we had a space and we were just so involved, you know, we were, I suppose, passionate, I don't know if it's the right word, but we were so involved. We rehearsed every day, you know, so we'd rehearse six days a week, six or eight hours a day. 
for a year. So we just, because we had the space, we can do that. So we're just writing all the time and experimenting all the time. And just, so we became, even if we weren't maybe natural musicians, we became, you know, we got pretty good, I think. Yeah. At our own style, we didn't play other people's music much anymore. Yeah. Uh, and we wrote our own stuff. So we just became proficient in our, in our own way, whatever way that was. Uh, yeah, it was just putting the time in and just practicing and practicing and practicing and you know finding finding a sound. And... Was there was there a moment or a track that you suddenly listened back and thought, actually, this was this is pretty good. I think it was a couple. I think a song called "Honey at the Core," the first the first single was like that. But before that, there was a track called "State of Art," which stems back to the very early days of the band. In fact, it's on that recording from nineteen eighty one. And when James Grant joined the band, that was a song that stuck out to him. And we were doing some cover versions and stuff. And he said to Chris, oh, who wrote that one? And Chris said, I wrote that. And he was like, what do you mean you wrote that? And that's what, that was the song that we want, made James want to join the band because he was like, yeah. that, you wrote that, that's amazing, you know, as a, as a young yeah. And it's a great song, you know, I, I can say yeah. it's still, Okay, yeah, fantastic song. So, uh, Chris had that ability to, to be writing at that point, and then when James joined, you know, Chris and James wrote quite a lot together. And so, so, but yeah, so I think that was maybe the first one where we knew we had something that was pretty, pretty special. I think. Yeah. I remember a few people, we, all the bands, you know, used to hang out more or less the same bar in Glasgow, the Rock Gardens, and I remember speaking to Bobby Bluebell. He was, you know, friends again. Yeah, I think I think we just done that first demo you mentioned, Paul and Bobby. Come up and said, "Oh, a great song!" You know, you know, thing is he taking? You know, he's just that waiting for the punchline. No, no, he's just saying that as some. <laughs> where's the booby trap here? And also James King of Lone Wolf's fame, who was we were all terrified of him because he allegedly had an axe inside his sports jacket. <laughs> One of those, you know, secondhand shop kind of grey. Old grey jackets, an old man's jacket, and his big national health specs, and uh, we were terrified because we you know, had this reputation. But he came up and oh my god, I was like, oh. so squeaky bum time, as Billy Connolly would say. But J James King wants to talk to me. He's like, hey, you, and uh, fucking brilliant song, by the way. And, you know, it was like, hang on, well, there must be something here. You don't realise yourself as you're a getting more professional musically or actually maybe stitching a few decent songs together. And I think a part of our run of luck was as we kind of brought whatever talents we had uh, to the boil as such. And James coming on board, now James was a, like a, is a yeah. very, very talented, um, a precociously talented musician. I mean, it really was, you know, way beyond, I don't know if he'd, I think again, Bridget sat in his bedroom for about six years, but he had a, ma a massive, a massive natural skill set on the guitar. Even to he, also, he also had, I think also because he had such a diverse understanding, you know, he'd learn every Rolling yeah. Stone song. Yeah, he had eagles, guitar, all sorts of different styles. So he brought a real sense of musicianship to the band and I suppose in, in essence helped push the rest of us, is it? As well, yeah. So yeah, it, it, it just was the missing the missing ingredient to it all gel. What we'd been working on for a couple of years, and then suddenly was sort of turbocharged it. You know, and someone really kind of 
I wasn't. I, think, I don't think James would mind me saying this either. I would say, in a sense, he was more overtly and more directly ambitious than maybe either of the two of us were. Uh, yeah. Maybe more driven in that, in that sense. Uh, and I, again, I think that that helped focus the band. Yeah. And when and when I, I always mention them, but when when anybody talks about sort of the music of the eighties, they often mention you know, Orange Juice, the Go Betweens, the Smiths, the June Brides. When when you sort of obviously Orange Juice were going, when you heard things like the Smiths coming along as well, did that sort of give you a bit more excitement and enthusiasm? Thinking, God, this is you know this is we're part of this kind of scene. We're not just kind of outsiders. This hasn't been a scene that's been and gone. This is like happening and we're part of this zeitgeist moment really yeah i think particularly the the orange juice scene because it was so local to us and those records were so striking just like gold aztec camera um, poor old soul blue boy felicity the go-betweens record that came out on postcard so the smiths seemed to come I think we possibly had already signed a major deal with the Smith. The Smiths, it was almost, I'm thinking that almost is more of a, scent, a feeling of, of rivalry. Of, of, <laughs> a new kid in the block was, for a point, we were kind of ahead of the Smiths on the curve for a small. So that's So a charming man came out and it was like, oh, whoa, what the hell? You know, it seemed to come as a bolt from the blue, as, as these things do, and you're maybe not part of a local scene. Yeah. Um, so a different relationship to that. But certainly the orange juice thing, very much as you describe it, was like, well, you know, well, we, we were, we're kind of part of this because we're, people were more or less hanging out in the, the same bars, certainly the same rehearsal spaces. The studios that were affordable were few and far between. There was maybe only a couple, not like it is today where the technology has changed so much. Um, and, you know, orange juice and Aztecs were doing the demos in where we did our stuff. And that was that was exciting. You know, you, you'd see an Aztec juice Quartering. We were, we were close friends with Strawberry Switchblade as well. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. they were a fourth piece originally, and he yeah. was going to be the bass player and I was going to be the drummer. So um, we became close with them yeah. as well. So there was another, they were kind of, I suppose they were new wavy and, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it was this whole group of people. And uh, although I didn't really know Stephen Pastor at the time, but he was really friendly with Strawberry Switchblade, although we didn't know each other. So it was this massive scene. Yeah, it was, it was a scene, yeah. And were the, actually, were the shop assistants, had they started by then, or were they still about to appear? Because they, they, they were on 53rd and 3rd records, weren't they, which was yeah. all part of that scene, wasn't it? Yeah. And of course, there was, another, there was a lot of other Scottish bands that were going on that maybe you didn't go into hear much of like end games and so forth but then there was the cocktail twins working away in palladium studios so we worked in a studio um, with a guy called john turner who's really quite an important figure in scottish music in a sense he ran this really brilliant studio and i found it in a magazine called international musician because i had lots of keyboards so we went there but you know so we were working there uh, to see uh, Cocteau Twins did all their early albums. Yeah, not before AD stuff was done. Anyway. And it had quite, a, that studio had, had an influence on how those records sounded as yeah. well. So you, we'd be in for two weeks and then they'd be in and then there'd be other Scottish bands later on like Capra Cayley who were from the traditional music scene working in there. But it was a really important hub for people to go, David Scott from the Pearl Fishers. Yeah. And, 
Joseph Kane. Bobby Henry, who was a songwriter and producer at the time, stuff working with lots of different bands. So, yeah. so what, what did you feel when you heard Jesus and the Mary Chain suddenly sort of coming into the scene? Because that was quite different, wasn't it, to these crafted songs? Yeah. Well, the, Bobby, uh, the, I was in a band after Friends Again called Love and Money, and Bobby, the bass player, he produced early stuff for, in another studio called Park Lane in Glasgow, and a lot of stuff came out of Park Lane, and had a studio and a management company and all that, and that's where Jesus and Mary changed the early stuff as well. So it was just so different. I mean, it, it was yeah. just, they were so different, I suppose, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I, I remember again the, the strong feeling of um, so the rivalry was, was my overriding feeling. And I remember being quite dismissive, thinking it sounded very, the kind of velvets, the kind of, you know, full on. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a funny point, and I, I sometimes regret this, that when you, particularly when you're in a young band, and you, you, you're always simply looking over your shoulder, you, there's a funny point where you stop being, you can't see, I, I didn't seem to be able to be so much of a, a fan, but you're always, I don't know, you're always looking to see how you can how you can get ahead, or you feel, maybe feel threatened by people coming up, by, which is, yeah, well, I guess, it's I guess the best, it's, best I thing, but it just seems to happen to a lot of bands, for yeah. whole reason, what have you. I know. Actually, I'm going to... This is happens to my very good friend. I was going to say, this is going to run out in like 60 seconds. I'm going to have to send you another invite because apparently when it's a three-way conversation, we have 40 minutes. So yeah, shall I just yeah. finish this yeah. and send you another invite really quickly? Wait a minute. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Okay. There you go, dear listener. That is showbiz. And I've also left, kept it in for various reasons. Because, um, yes, the world of Zoom. One day we'll look back and laugh at it. Anyway, a three-way conversation only lasts 40 minutes. Make a note. Uh, big thank you so far. That's uh, I think it's going well. That's Chris Thompson and uh, Paul McGeechan from um, Friends Again. There you go. Part two coming up very soon. <laughs>